0: Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th, entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. As W.C. Fields would say, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. It's been
1: a little bit over a year since I spoke to Kay and tried to come up with a definition for him of what poetry actually is. And I've realized over the last couple of weeks that I still haven't answered that question. And he's still waiting. (laughs) He still wants some kind of definition. What is poetry? Where does it start? Where does it end? And I think, you know, why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he want some kind of delineation here? That is normal. To find a line where we can say, this is the thing. This isn't the thing. It's a completely obvious question to be asking when I think about it. Probably the strange part is that I have been going about my business as someone who writes this stuff for over a decade without really coming to any kind of answer, without really bothering to ask. I want to give him a good answer. Here's what I said the other day. Um... Okay, definition. Think about music. The guy who shares the office with me is a classical composer, I think. (laughs) Um, And I reckon that if I sat him down uh, with Spotify and played him like, I don't know, Post Malone or Migos or something like that, he would just say, that's not music. So like the unsatisfying answer here, I think, is that the definition is personal to you. Like you get to make the definition and you get to have your own definition, defend it and make a case for what is included in it and what isn't. And um, that is exciting. Uh, The stakes are exceptionally low and therefore people get super fucking head up and uh fearful and like way outsized like level annoyed with each other so yeah that's not very satisfying though is it i mean going with it depends on who you ask or you get to make up your own mind is almost as useless as you'll know it when you see it but i still feel like that's true Particularly when I think about my own poetry teachers, I feel like at one end of the spectrum I got to learn from Al Filreis, and Joshua Megan is very much at the other end of the spectrum. They would not have the same definition of what poetry is, I don't think. Uh, they would overlap quite a bit, but I think there would be, there would be cases where they, they don't agree. But I believe I can learn from them both. And I believe I can come up with my own definition. I kept thinking about this over the last week or so. And I think what I wanna say to Kay is that maybe it's the audience who decides.
0: 54 degrees on a slightly overcast day where the man said rain. You get paid that kind of money for being wrong. 60% of the time, it'd be working. The mileage is 79,345. Gages on reserve. Riding on fumes here. i got to tank up when I get into town. Remind me to tell you how much that is. Lunch was uh, $6.31 at the Lamplighter Inn. That's on Highway 2. Near...
1: I have a very generous listener by the name of Wallace. He's the one who put me on the trail of Vincent Buckley a couple of weeks ago. And he got in touch the other day to say this in relation to the fear that i was discussing last episode if we think about the community and practice of poetry as if it were a kind of organization we might ask about how the behaviors of individual poets or those who work in the field are guided first by a logic of benefits if i do x then y will follow this tallies with your suggestion that poets who have a great deal invested might feel they have a lot to lose through transgressions of one sort or another. Wallace is talking about this against the theory of something called sociological institutionalism, which I had never heard of before, but this is a theory that says basically institutional rules are culturally constructed. And he goes on to write, However, institutionalists also talk about a logic of appropriateness i.e., people don't just act in response to the perceived costs and benefits of their actions, but in accordance with formal, or more likely in this case, informal rules, that tell them what the right thing to do is. It may be, then, that if we find ourselves in a situation of rapid change, when those rules are being continually disrupted and overturned, and there's no clear replacement of one set of rules by another, that there's little guidance as to how we should act. And so perhaps the wariness is not a deliberate strategy based on costs and benefits, but simply displays a caution and lack of clarity about what the rules are and how to proceed. This resonates with me so deeply. I'm so grateful to Wallace for articulating it in this way. Um, yeah, there's so much in this you might have noticed that there was a hole in my schedule last week. Uh, I've been really unsure how to talk about this, but essentially every now and again I record an interview and it doesn't make it to the show. Very, very rare, but occasionally it does happen. Um, And I think, you know, I, I think that Wallace really hits the nail on the head when he says, you know... It's, um, it's a lack of clarity about what the rules are. When people do ask me not to put something out, very, very often there's nothing specific that they are pointing to that they've said that they're uncomfortable with. Because that's easy, right? Like that does happen and I can just yank it out. But I feel that In these cases, it's more a generalised sense of um, when what I say hits your audience, it's going to be misunderstood somehow. I don't know what the rules are, but I'm fairly sure I'm breaking some of them. So what Wallace is saying here about fear also overlaps with something that uh, my listener Anna said, Anna from Canada, Uh, She responded to this question of fear as well, and she talked about her own experience as a classical musician in an orchestra, which has some really fascinating areas of overlap with poetry, I think. So Anna writes, When I started in the orchestra, we still had a very old school martial atmosphere, and we had a conductor who would abruptly shift from calm and smiling to Toscanini-esque rages even storming off the podium and slamming the door behind him on occasion. That was a long time ago, and we've had some really lovely conductors since, but that initial experience set the tone for me and many others. And I really hope you've seen the movie Whiplash. (laughs) If you haven't, it's a great night in. Or maybe a traumatic night in, it depends. And he goes on to say... There's a real fear of standing up in front of others or being seen to be acting outside your position. We're all introverts to begin with. We're doing something we feel very passionate about. And we're very defensive about whatever square inch of belonging we have. Because we know how easily it can be lost. And we are terrified of speaking up. It's a rather toxic mix of ambition, insecurity, passion and despair. It's your basic Cold War starter pack. (laughs) Oh, God. Nailed it. (laughs) Absolutely nailed it, Anna. I had another conversation with a poet the other day. He was relaying uh, a comment from an artist friend when they were at a poetry reading. And apparently this, this friend who was, I think, a visual artist turned to him and said something along the lines of... All you poets want to do is impress each other we are hyper aware of the audience right hearing that comment i was thinking too about something that Aidan coleman uh, john forbes biographer said to me when i interviewed him i don't think i actually included this in the episode but he told me that forbes used to practice his one-liners on people the one-liners that would eventually make it into poems he would test them and see if they got a good enough laugh before he actually decided to include them. Hyper aware of the audience. But if the audience is mostly other poets, then does poetry become something like a closed system? We continue to accept that this is poetry, this is also poetry, this is also poetry until we do end up with work that may as well have been written by a machine because there's so little left of the human voice inside it. And then somebody like Kay turns to me and says how do you define a poem? And I go, well I don't I I don't know. (laughs) Let me bring something in here to try to make this a bit more concrete. This is The first part of a poem called Bean Spasms by Ted Berrigan. It has an epigraph to George Schneeman. New York's lovely weather hurts my forehead. In praise of thee, the white dead whose eyes know. What are they of the tiny cloud, my brain? The city's tough red buttons. Oh Mars, red angry planet, candy bar with sky on top. Why it's young Leander hurrying to his death. What? What time is it in New York? In these here Alps? City of lovely tender hate and beauty making beautiful old rhymes. I ran away from you when you needed something strong. Pretty disjointed, right? It's pretty, pretty out there. It does pass uh, what I think of as the Billy Collins test. When I saw Billy Collins read once, he said there was a bit of Q and A after the reading, and um, he gave some advice to the audience. He said, at the start of a poem, you want to tell people who, what, and where. We definitely know where we are we're in new york we usually are in new york when when berrigan's speaking there's plenty of who there's the dead there's the god mars there's leander there's the person that the poem is written to george Schneeman. we don't necessarily know who that is when we read the poem but there are characters the what the what is much more difficult to pin down. Looking at a poem like that, I start thinking about whether I'm being a little bit played because my poetry landscape includes the huge crater where the Malley hoax landed. And for that reason, I think I have a healthy dose of skepticism built in. But then if I'm going to bring up the Malley poems, I have to acknowledge that whether we think they're nonsense, or unintentionally great, or even intentionally great, there's never any disagreement that the Mallee poems are poems. And same with this Berrigan poem. What I just read might have been very, very irritating to you, but someone, somewhere along the line, turned to Ted Berrigan and said, hey, great poem, man. Let me publish it for you. But does the inclusivity of that, the permissiveness of that, the fact that, at least in my world, it's very hard to find somebody who would say, that's not a poem. Does that mean we end up with work that is boring and unintelligible? Do we need a Toscanini-esque conductor to throw a fit and walk out and slam the door? I hope not.
0: Diane, it is 4.28 a.m. I have just been woken up by the most god-awful racket which you can probably hear over the sound of my voice. Can you hear that? Up until this moment, I've experienced nothing at the Great Northern Hotel but the most pleasant, courteous service imaginable. However, it just goes to prove the point that once a traveler leaves his home, he loses almost 100% of his ability to control his environment. Diana was wondering if you could overnight express to me two pair of those ear pillow silicone earplugs which I used on my last trip to New York.
1: Of course, when we're talking about the limits of poetry, we're not only talking about the stuff that people might call nonsensical or irritating or unnecessarily difficult or obscure. We also have to talk about the people who call themselves poets but who other people look at and say... Oh, sure. Yeah. Nice. A poet? Yeah. I don't think so. Another question that Kay and I sometimes go back and forth on is uh, when is it a poem and when is it a song? Thinking about these things, I went in search of poems by one of my favourite pop singers, Halsey. Halsey put out a poetry book uh, about a year ago and... Here's one for your consideration. It's called Freckles on the Face of California. Sitting on this patio furniture I spent a fucking fortune on, but we only seem to use it for a place to cry. Where we won't be heard by the people inside, I look across the valley to the city lights, like freckles on the face of California. I said, I'm not mad, and you can fuck who you want to fuck but I'll only cause a riot if I hear you're making love. But really, I'm just trying to keep my body from dissolving into a film that'll swim around the rim of this glass of wine. I know your mother hates me. You don't have to lie. And I've spent a few nights on the phone with mine, but she said, we can fix it. And she won't pick sides because she hopes that you'll give me a baby. She's crazy. She did the same thing to my dad. Now he hates me. And all he ever gave me was freckles on my face and California. I think that's an excellent song. (laughs) I really, I really would love to hear that put to music. Um, It's fairly embarrassing as a poem. But why, right, Kay? Like, what, why? (laughs) (laughs) That's just, that's just my opinion, in the words of Our Ladies of Beverly Hills Housewives. It's just my opinion. (laughs) Interestingly enough, unlike most people who work in poetry, this book by Halsey attracted some really um, no-holes-barred, straight-down-the-line totally direct criticism of which parts of the poems work and which parts don't. Most of this is happening on YouTube, and one of the videos I found had nearly 140,000 views. So what does it matter if somebody like me sits around laughing at this thing, freckles on the face of California, What does it matter if I think it's a song and not a poem? If there are over a hundred thousand people who are engaging with it as a poem? Think about that Halsey poem and listen to this. This is part of a poem called Darkness by Byron. I had a dream, which was not at all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came, and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation, and the hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light. It's a long poem. It is all in blank verse. Is that what makes it a poem? Is it the fact that for centuries people have looked at it and said, that's a poem? I know that probably sounds kind of stupid, but really what, what is it specifically that makes that different to the Halsey thing? Or maybe a better question is who makes it a poem? Who's in charge of that?
0: Diane, I'm holding in my hand a small box of chocolate bunnies.
1: Twin Peaks might be my favourite thing ever made. Even though it is right at the limit in terms of the scariness that I can take on screen, and even though there is a lot of very creepy sexualized violence in it, I still think it's a masterpiece. And it's really hard to pin down exactly what it is that makes it so perfect to me. But I reckon Carmen Goughlin's Agent Cooper is a major contributing factor. He's an exceptional character. He's not like most detectives you see on TV. He happens to be an extremely ethical person. Even though he lives by his own really weird code. He's really kind but he's also not afraid to do things that might seem very weird to the people around him. He'll go looking for evidence under the fingernail of a dead body, but he'll also trust that if he's had a weird dream, it probably has information in it that's going to lead him to where he needs to get to. The other really interesting thing about him is that as the audience, we're kind of lost a lot of the time. We don't have much to go on to help us to understand how Cooper's mind works. And that's the bigger mystery, I think, that drives the whole show. What happened to Laura Palmer is important, but I think what's more interesting to us is, why is this guy like this? What is driving him? I think David Lynch knows that he needs a device to let us in. He actually needs Cooper to talk to the audience. He needs to get us on side, and that's why he creates Diane. I mean, who knows, it might not even have been his idea. This was an extremely popular show when it came out. But there have to have been conversations where people turned to David Lynch and said, what the hell is this? This is not a TV show. This is a nightmare that makes no sense. We cannot put this on TV. So someone, whether it was Lynch himself or someone close to him, somebody knew that if you're going to take people into the Red Room, you need to stay tethered to the world. So we need Diane. We need her even though we don't even know who she is. Is she his secretary? Is she a girlfriend? Is she alive? Does she even exist? Is this just Agent Cooper talking to himself? Whoever or whatever she is, she's completely essential. Diane is the only reason we have a chance to get to know and therefore care about Cooper. We actually end up with some pretty incredible information that no one else in Twin Peaks has and we know way more about Cooper than anyone else around him does. The moments when he's talking to Diane are kind of melancholy in a way. They're not voice messages on a phone. He's recording into a handheld tape recorder. We don't even know if he ever sends the tapes. We never see him do that. They feel about as effective as messages in a bottle.
0: Diane, 4.37 AM. After a long investigative night, returning to my room at the Great Northern, we have one suspect in custody and Leo Johnson, the man I believe is responsible for Laura's death, won't be able to escape the dragnet we've thrown up for him much longer. as you can hear from the ambient sound around me. And I notice with some relief that the Icelandic group staying on my floor have either checked or passed out.
1: The audience is really powerful. People will still say, oh, no one reads poetry. But as I was talking about last time, it's almost becoming a fashion statement at this point. And even if you don't buy that, At least among the world of poets, the audience of poets is really powerful because you have this amorphous, indefinite they who can stop you from saying things and they can make you defensive about your square inch of belonging, as Anna put it. At the same time, they can make writing in particular ways totally acceptable when they wouldn't be acceptable outside that world of poets. So you can end up deep, deep inside your particular red room, making absolutely no sense with no tether to an audience beyond the other people in that room. But the endorsement of the poets around you can mean that you don't care. You don't have to care. And then there's the other kind of audience, huge numbers of people who may or may not write poetry, may or may not have any uh, real interest in poetry, but who can make someone into a poet, even if they are um, more of a singer, more of a fashion icon. And then over time, the audience are the ones who are going to keep you alive. They're the difference between your being a Byron and being a Buckley or a Webb and they're the ones who can reach into your drawer and find your hidden manuscript and make you a poet even after you're dead. They're the ones who are going to receive your message in a bottle. And I don't know, for me, every single poem feels like that. They all feel like these quiet little missives sent into space. They're made for a particular person, but also a non-particular audience. There's an intention behind them, but who knows whether they're ever going to reach their destination.
0: Diane, it struck me again earlier this morning. There are two things that continue to trouble me, and I'm speaking now not only as an agent of the Bureau, but also as a human being. What really went on between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys? And who really pulled the trigger on JFK?
1: Hello, you are still here. That must mean you really like the show. Thank you very much. Um, I'm gonna be doing a poetry reading next weekend on the internet and it has an open mic. It's called Lit Balm. I'm linking to it in the show notes. Um, if you wanna come, that, that would be so cool. Um, I will be reading poems that I wrote in an attempt to impress Joshua Megan and poems by other Australians that I think uh, need more attention. I haven't fully decided on who that will be, but I have some ideas. So come along, read your poems. I'd love to see you. Bye.